We are in a series called The Holy Spirit and You. If you're able to stand, and I'm going to say this, for quite a while, would you stand? It's a long text. I usually let you stay seated, but I'm in the mood to have you in pain. So here we go. (laughs) Here we go. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. The angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark. We talked about him last week. Where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. You know, I don't know what they were praying for Peter but it was not for him to be delivered supernaturally. And thank God he can do above and beyond all we ask or think. All right. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him after securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king. They asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a God, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down. 
and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Father, you have something for every single one of us. Holy Spirit, we are completely dependent on you. You are the true teacher. You're the anointed one. You are the one that brings conviction and instruction. Have your way in this place. We will give you all the glory and praise for every good thing that happens. In Jesus' mighty name, and we all said, amen. All right, you may be seated. Suffering is over. All right. Uh, The title of the message is Unoffended. Point one is people who are offended by God. I've got two groups of people that are offended by God. First is unbelievers. The unbelieving often feel like they have an ironclad case for not believing. How could there possibly be an all-loving, all-powerful God and be this world at the same time. The, the, the idea comes from this, that they are less loving than all loving, and if they had all power, they would never allow the suffering that is happening in this world every single day in human beings, in third world nations, in their own lives, in uh, all of the injustices that are happening, this seems like a very, very strong case that there can't be an all-loving, all-powerful God. If there is a God, he is sadistic. But this seems like a very ironclad case to them, that if there is an all-loving, all-powerful God, then how could there be leaders like Herod Agrippa? Um, right now in, in, in our text, this is the time when Caligula is the Caesar in Rome. Um, Israel still under Jewish occupation. You couldn't get a more narcissistic person than Caligula. He was twisted, perverted, unjust in every way. And this is his buddy, uh, Herod Agrippa. He is called king. Um, His grandfather was the last person that had the title king. His grandfather was the King Herod at Jesus' birth. He was was another one of these leaders that did everything to keep his power. He killed his wives when, when he was suspicious. He killed his sons that were heirs to the throne. He's the one that led the slaughter of the innocents and that were two and under when, when Jesus was born. Horrible, horrible guy. When he dies, he turns it over to three of his remaining sons, and they are, they, they are, the two of them are tetrarchs, one of them is an ethnarch, the, the, then they started, Pilate came and he was a, a procurator, and that, there's a whole story behind that. Anyway, the point is this, in, when Herod Agrippa comes to the throne, he's Caligula's friend, so Caligula gives him back the whole territory of Judea, the whole territory that his grandfather had ruled. And this guy is just like him. Here he, he kills James, who's innocent. Peter gets delivered, and he has 16 innocent soldiers um, 
executed for it. This is, how can there be an all-loving, all-powerful God and be leaders in the world like this? Paul and Barnabas are on their way back from Jerusalem. They're going back to Antioch. The reason why they were in Jerusalem is because there was a horrible famine in the land and they went to take a gift there. How can there be a God and, and all, be all of these famines and natural disasters and horrible things that happen? Unbelievers get offended by God. The second group of people that get offended with God are believers. The righteous are not always delivered in this life. Why would James die and Peter live? James is one of the big three. Jesus had three in his most inner circle. James, John, and Peter. He's one of the big three. Why would God listen to prayers about Peter and somehow overlook the prayers for James? Now, it's a little confusing in the New Testament because there are two James. One is this one that was in the inner circle that's one of the first martyrs. The other one is the brother of Jesus who is, becomes a leader in the Jerusalem church. He wrote the book of James. And so you hear about James in the future, but this James, this James dies. A few years ago, our woman's pastor, Angie Rusu, um, died of cancer. I don't know that there's ever been more prayer and more faith I don't know if a, a person was more faithful than Angie, and, but not just faithful, filled with faith for her healing. She was believing for healing until the end. And why have others with less faith gotten healed, and why did Angie die? That is a, that is a conundrum for believers. And oftentimes it leads to offense. Matt Collins worked for Crisis Response for, for a year. Well, he didn't work for them. He volunteered for them. And they would go to places that were ravaged by natural disasters all over the United States. And they were in one place, and uh, this, this, this believer is, comes up to him, and he's so excited, and he said, he said, my family and I prayed. The, 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 the hurricane went through, and everything around us is destroyed, but our house was untouched. Isn't God good? And Matt is like, brother, I celebrate with you that great answer to prayer, but you need to, you need to be sensitive, because I just talked for a family that prayed just like you prayed, loved Jesus with all their heart, and they have lost everything. What? The book of Job tells of this conversation between Job's friends and Job. And Job's friends are convinced that God delivers the righteous and the, he punishes the wicked. And this is the world that we live in where the righteous are always delivered and the, and the wicked are always punished. And because Job is going through all of this horrible stuff, obviously he's wicked. Obviously he has sinned. And Job's argument back to them is this. Open up your eyes. That's not the world we live in. Sometimes the righteous suffer. 
Sometimes the wicked get delivered. Sometimes the wicked live long, prosperous lives and the righteous lives are cut short. This, this, is, this is the world we live in and this is what I'm currently experiencing right now. It's not right that I am suffering. It's not just Job though. Every believer will deal with this in their life. John the Baptist is in prison. It's a dark time. It's an isolated time. Um, no doubt the enemy is trying to attack him as well. And uh, he says to his disciples who come to visit him in prison, go ask Jesus, is he the one or should we wait for someone else? And his disciples go to him and, and, and Jesus says, you tell John this, the deaf hear, the blind see, good news is being preached to the poor. Blessed are those who are not offended by me. Folks, if John the Baptist struggles with possibly be offended with God, then all of us are in jeopardy of becoming offended by God. So, who, who, who's in danger of being offended? Believers and unbelievers. So that brings us to this question, how can I live unoffended by God? How can I live a life that, that does not take offense at God? And this is my, this is point two. I guess I have three points, so here's point two. Stop trying to tame God into our image. Job 41. Can you pull in Leviathan with a fish hook or tie down its tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through its nose or pierce its jaw with a hook? Will it keep begging you for mercy? Will it speak to you with gentle words? Will it make an agreement with you for you to take it as your slave for life? Can you make a pet of it like a bird or put it on a leash for the young women in your house? No one is fierce enough to rouse it. Who then is able to stand against me? Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. So Job's got this little running offense with God, and if, if I could just get an, get, if I could get an audience with God, I could tell him how unjust this is and how unjust his world is and, and what's happening to me is unjust, and um, I would really like to tell God, I just, just, he's doing a bad job running things. And so he finally gets his audience. God shows up. Job 38, and God, he gets a talking to. And one of the things that God points out is that he's made all of these wild animals that were created wild. Nobody can tame them. He highlights the Leviathan, which is probably an animal that's gone extinct, most, most commentators think. But he, he looks, at, and God takes animal after animal and says, look at this one, look at this one, look at this one. But he, he takes these wild animals, and specifically here, Leviathan, and he says, uh, 
You can't, you can't control them. You can't, you can't put them on a leash and make them your pet. And if you can't do that with him, then, then why are you trying to do it with me? Why are you trying to put me on a leash? Why, are you, why do you think that I'm going to operate in your boundaries? Why are you putting a box around me and around how I work? Let me ask you a question, Mr. Job. You're so smart. Where, where, where does the snow come from? Where, 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 how does the wind blow? He goes through, he says, uh, if you're so powerful, let's see you just do something small like create a star. Just let's see it, dude. You're, you, got, you got so much wisdom. Be very, very careful in judging God. The Bible says in Isaiah 55 that his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts and not just a little. As high as the heavens are above the earth. God looks at things very, very differently than you and I do. And what happened with Job is, is he, got, he got filled with his offense. He got filled with his opinion. He was sure he was right. He was sure he was being cheated. He was sure that somehow, that. and when you are filled with offense, you cannot be filled with the Holy Spirit at the same time, even if you're charismatic. God, fill me, God, fill me, God, fill me. As long as you're filled with your offense, you've you got to empty something first. We talked about that last week. And so what we have in Job 42 is, is Job's prayer of repentance. Here it is. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. What happens when you get offended with God is your heart gets disconnected from his goodness. And all of a sudden, God, who used to be your love, used to be your comfort, used to be, all of a sudden, you're alienated from that in your heart and you resent that God didn't answer your prayer and that you can't control God. And God's inviting you beyond that. He's inviting you to let go of your control and instead of being frustrated that God isn't small enough for you to control him, why not be excited about that God is bigger than the box you and I have and instead worship him? God never does give Job his answers. He'll get those in heaven. Job's friends, they're also filled with something. They are filled with their opinion of how things are. They are, they are absolutely certain that they know that Job is sinned and that, that God is righteous and God would never do what happened. What happened to Job would never happen if he was good because they're good and it's not going to happen to them. And they're just, they're absolutely certain for 37 chapters. They are certain that they are right and that Job is wrong and that they're, the way they see it is the right way to see it. And what they're in essence trying to do is tame God by their theology. And they also 
have to repent. God makes, makes them go to Job and say, we were wrong, pray for us. We live in a day where lots of people are certain they know all the answers. We live in a day where people are very empowered with their opinion, with their narrative of how it's going and what we should be doing, and not only what I should be doing, but what you should be doing and what the country should be doing, and, and very, very strong, and it's all over Facebook, and it's all over the news, and, and we've got lots and lots of strong opinions. Let me, give you, let me, let me just give you some advice as a, as, a, as a spirit-filled Christian. You will not be filled with the Spirit and be filled with your strong opinions at the same time. It's, it's utter presumption to think you know the answers for how it, it is and how everything is supposed to be. We just need to be a little softer. It's great to have opinions. It's great. I certainly have opinions about stuff. But let's, let's get emptied of our certainty of how things run down here so that we can be filled with the Holy Spirit. Point three, last point. Embrace God's view of this present time. Acts chapter 12, verse 24. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. In the midst of the darkness of Herod, the darkness of Caligula, the darkness of famines and earthquakes and tornadoes and pandemics, in the midst of that, there's something else happening. The word of God is spreading and flourishing. One translation says it's multiplying. There is an invisible kingdom of light that is growing in the darkness. The invisible is more real than the temporal because it is eternal. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, 18. It, well, you might not have it. I'm not sure. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Here's how John says it. All that is in the world, and he defines the world as this, the loss of the flesh the loss of the eyes, the seen, and the boastful pride of life, all that is passing away. But whoever does the will of God will abide forever. So to embrace God's perspective, you, you've, got, you've got to see this life as very, very brief, very short, and that God's purpose, which is eternal, is, 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 the, is the real world. It's the big it's the big picture. That invisible kingdom <clears throat> is the one that's most real. For, for God, um, this little test of the human race is going to last very brief. God is going to clean everything up. God is going to bring justice. God is going to wrap everything up at the second coming of Christ. He will take the curse off of creation and he will bring full redemption. 
But we are, we're not in that. We're not there yet. We are still living between Jesus' coming and his coming again. So I want to give you a testimony. This is a young man in Nigeria named Muhammad. Muhammad emailed the church maybe a month ago. And he said, it was just such an encouraging email. He, he's a converted Muslim and lives in constant danger all the time. And he says in this email that he found out about City Church through his friend Angela. And he now, whenever he needs help, he goes and watches a sermon on City Church's website. He said, I'm helped all the time. I, oh, God always uses it to speak to me. I, I get back up. I get encouraged. Thank you, Pastor Tom. Thank you, City Church. I immediately emailed that to Sarah and said, get this out to all of our tech people. This would not happen without our tech people. Somebody in Nigeria is watching and getting help from what is happening here at City Church. So I went farther and said, I'd like to hear Muhammad's testimony. And so he sent this to us. He met a woman. I met a woman, Rebecca, when I heard her speak to train teachers in a village near mine. When I heard her speak, there was a gentleness and peace, but my heart wasn't content from that time on. After some time, I reached out to her, inquiring about the God she spoke so highly of over and over. I knew I wanted what she had. Rebecca became my inspiration as she spoke so boldly about Jesus and explained forgiveness of sins. After Jesus came to me in my dreams, I vowed to give my life to Christ. Though I cannot openly speak of Jesus, not because I feared death, because there is nothing I would want more than to be with him. But I must reach my people and share the light, the truth they deserve. This is my calling. I cannot deny it. This is how I came to know Christ. It has been very personal. Jesus is my guide. I have no fear. So he, he lives in a place where militant Islam is taking over, and for him to openly preach the gospel would mean certain death, of which he's not afraid of. He's happy to go be with Jesus. But the only reason he wants to stay alive and isn't openly preaching is so that he can share more with people. And so he is trying to stay alive and using wisdom and, and not doing things presumptuous because I, more people need to be saved. They need what I have. And here's this guy in the middle of darkness burning for Jesus. And you say, what, what, you know, what is one little guy loving Jesus, preaching Jesus going to do in this world over there that is increasingly dark and the, the, the leadership is oppressing and killing and squashing out all of uh, Christianity. And um, what difference could Muhammad possibly make? And this is, this, is, this is the wisdom of God. This is the power of light, isn't it? 
If, if we turn all of the lights off in here, and it was completely dark in here, and one little kid lit one little candle, every single eye in this place would go to that candle. A light always overcomes darkness. This is the world that God wants right now. How could this possibly be the, the world that God wants right now? Huh? God is sovereign. He could have any world he wanted. And this is the world that he chose to have. Pastor Tom, why? Why? All of the suffering all around us every day, all my own suffering, my own struggle with this, that, and the other thing. Why would God want this world to be the world right now? We'll talk about that, but I want you to see that it is his world, and he is still sovereign. He's given free will, he's let sin have its way, but he's, he's put limits on it, hasn't he? He intervenes with Herod and says that's too far and takes him out immediately. Josephus, who is a Jewish author who wrote about those times, tells the same story of Herod. It says, Acts says that he had these royal robes on and in, and in Josephus' account, it, it says that the sun was hitting those robes in such a way that he was shining brilliant and Josephus says, the people started crying out, he is a God, not just a man. He's a God, not just a man. And Josephus says, this is from the human perspective, he, he, just, he was struck and just fell over. And he said five days later he died and they found out that worms had been eating him from the inside out. Terrible, instantaneous judgment from God. God, God still is in charge, guys. God, God puts limits there's limits on the devil. The whole book of Job is about the limits on the devil. It, what the devil is doing to test believers. In, in, in the church at Smyrna, which is the only church that there's, there's no rebuke to. Actually, there's two churches in Revelation there's no rebuke to. Smyrna is one of them. And Jesus says the devil's about to test uh, you for 10 days. I know about it. I know it's the devil. I'm letting it happen but I am also limiting it. God is sovereign over all things. So then that maybe is even more disturbing. Why, why would God want this? So here's what Jesus said. Here's, here's the conditions the gospel is going to be preached in. By the express sovereignty of God, he says there's going to be false religions and false Christs. In the midst of the word of God, the truth of God, the gospel of God going out, God has willed that we have a choice and there's going to be false religion. Uh, Caligula was very religious. So was Herod. They had their own religion that used God for their own purposes and there's just false religion everywhere. You can, we've all got a choice of what religion we decide on. He said there's going to be wars and rumors of war. 
And then he says to them, don't be alarmed. When you hear of war and rumors of war, don't be alarmed. I know about it. I've told you in advance. The gospel's going to be preached, and human beings are going to be doing horrible things to each other. Right now, we live in a world where, my oh my, we're on the verge of a war with China because of Taiwan has got the microchips. We're on the verge of a war with Russia because of the computer hacking and all that's going on there. We, of course, we've got ISIS that's springing up again now in Afghanistan. And there's, there's not just war, but there's the, the fear of war, the, the terror of, of possible war. And what kind of a world do we live in, Pastor Tom? Jesus said, don't be alarmed. I'm over this. I, 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 I have allowed this. Then he goes on. He says, not only is there going to be false religion, not only is there going to be wars and rumors of war that will cause your heart to fear, um, he says there's going to be earthquakes, famines, tornadoes, and plagues. This, uh, the, nature is, is, is not redeemed yet, and all of this is going to be happening all around you. And not only that, you're going to be persecuted. Some of you are going to die. He says in John 16, I told you beforehand this is going to happen so that when it happens, you don't become offended. It, 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 this, you're going to have trouble in this world. It's going to be dark. You're going to be persecuted and some of you are going to die. And on top of that, Jesus says, that many people are going to fall away. People that used to love Jesus, people that used to worship next to you are going to leave the faith and they're going to do their own thing and they're going to become offended. And for you to make it, he says, you're going to have to persevere until the end to be saved. You're going to have to decide I'm not going to be offended. Disturbing. Why would God make us choose him in the darkness? If God really loves us and God wants us to be saved, why wouldn't he make it really easy? Why, why couldn't this be easy, easy to get saved? Why do we have to choose him in the midst of such darkness? One third of the angels rejected him in the light and lost their place in heaven. When human beings choose him in the darkness, they secure their place in heaven without God removing free will. The first group had their own test. They had free will. They saw him. They knew him. They, th there was no sin. There it was all beautiful. And a third ended up rejected, rejecting him. And will we'll eventually be the Bible says, destroyed in the lake of fire. And now with human beings, we get a very different test than the angels did. By the will of God, we choose him in the darkness. We choose him without seeing him. We choose him in the midst of pain. We choose him in the midst of demons. But when we choose him, when we persevere with him, when we see him in the light on that day, we will never leave him for all eternity. 
So Blaise Pascal, most people know Pascal as the famous mathematician, scientist. He, he lived in the 1600s. He's also a brilliant Christian and theologian. Here's what he said. God came to earth mildly and in power, both mild, both hidden and revealed, wishing to appear openly to those who seek him and hidden from those who shun him. He has qualified our knowledge of him by giving signs which can be seen by those who value him and not by those who do not. There is enough light for those who desire only to see and enough darkness for those of a contrary disposition. Christmas is God, not just God revealed, it's God concealed. God came in a way that he was hidden. Even though he appeared, even though he walked on this earth, even though we have the gospel accounts, he was hidden in a human body. On purpose. So the choice is now ours. So... I, uh, we can have the worship team come. So I was with a dad last week. Took, took him to lunch and, and he was just talking about the world and he's got two little kids and he said, uh, he said, this is just a fearful world to be raising kids. Almost like, you know, I don't know if it's the smartest thing to have kids. I mean, it was, it was that, it's just like, this is a tough world. For kids to be raised. And here's what I said to him. I said, bro, there's only one way to look at this. Absolutely only one way to look at this. This is the greatest time to be a Christian. This, this, is, this is the day... This is the day that God is pouring out his spirit on our sons and daughters. This is the day where Jesus is going to bring a great revival and awakening. And the only way to think about your children is that it's God's plan that they be part of that company. That we will raise children that will be so in love with Jesus that they will be unafraid to die for him. We will raise up children that are so uh, steadfast in eternity and so filled with truth that they are part of that Samuel generation that, that brings this increasing light in the darkness. It's the only way to raise your kids. Don't, don't raise your kids on defense. Don't raise your kids. This is a horrible world. We all need to hide in church until Jesus raptures us. Don't raise kids that way. So then, I'm like, dude, the only way you can raise kids that way is if you are that way. <laughs> Our kids do not become what we tell them to become. Has anybody learned that? 
They don't, they don't, they, there's not much weight in our instructions. If you, if you want them to become something, you, you actually need to be it. More is caught than taught. Pastor Tom, I think it might be too late for my kids are growing up. I'm dealing with grandkids. I think it might be too late for them. Listen, the beginning of the revival. A revival means bringing back to life something that used to be alive, that, not, that died. The beginning of revival is all the lost sons and daughters and the lost grandchildren coming back. That's the beginning of revival. That's those that used to love Jesus coming back. God's got a plan for your children and your grandchildren. But Pastor Tom, I think I blew it. Well, that's what grace is. We all blew it, but God forgives us and he gives us another chance. But guys, we have to be the Christians that we want them to be. We, it's not about them, it's about you. We, we have to be all in. Any other kind of Christianity is not going to make it. Example one, Western Europe. Biggest churches in the world are in, are in Europe. Most beautiful churches in the world are in Western Europe. Here's the only thing that they lack, people. Seriously, they're, they're, they're monuments. They're, they're, they're places, they, the time they get a lot of people is when tourists are there to see the church. Isn't this beautiful? Except there's no life there and there's no people there. Well, that could never happen to America. Of course it could happen to America. I don't know if you've noticed it, but God's letting us choose. If you, if you, if you're going to have to put a stake down and say, whether anyone else serves Jesus, I'm going to serve Jesus. Whoever I loved that backslid, whoever was my mentor, whoever, whatever TV preacher that ended up in adultery, that, that betrayed me, you, you got you to decide. It's not about them. It's about Jesus. So then what does God say to the unbeliever? This ironclad defense. How can an all-loving, all-powerful God have a world that has the injustice that this world has? Let me tell you his response, if that's you today. God's looking at you with pure love in his eyes, and here's what he says to you. If I had removed evil from the world, I would have had to have destroyed you. You are actually part of the evil in the world. But I loved you too much, and instead of destroying you, I came down in my love, and I died for you on a cross. I took your sin. You want justice? Then look to the cross because God's justice over sin and rebellion has already been carried out on the cross. And God has made a way for everybody to have mercy. But you need to come to Jesus. You need to come to Jesus. That's where God gives mercy. He gives mercy on the basis of justice. Justice happened in God's eyes, in God's mind, and his thoughts are way bigger than ours, over your sin by Jesus dying for you on the cross. And when you come to Christ, it, you get his righteousness because the penalty was already paid. So he can give you and I a gift. A gift is something someone else paid for. It's not something that's free. It's something that's free to you, but it was paid for by somebody else. 
What about all the ongoing suffering? Jesus died for the whole world. He resurrected from the dead. He's drawing all people to himself, granted invisibly. Everything the enemy has is seen, and it's outward, and it cries out, and it says, God isn't good. God isn't alive. God, it's very loud. Everything the enemy does is loud, and everything God does is kind of quiet. But make no mistake about it. God loves us. There is a kingdom that is rising and increasing. The word of God is going up. My, oh my, if God can take the internet, which has been used for so much evil, and send the word of God over to Nigeria from our church to one little bright shining light. Are you kidding me? This is a great hour to be alive. But you need to be in Christ. And so... So uh, every head bowed and every eye closed for just a moment. I, I, wa I want to pray for, for two groups. Um, the first one is this. You are, the fact that you're here today means even though you've been an unbeliever, it means that God's, God's drawing you. Otherwise you wouldn't be here today. And today you want you want to come to Jesus for forgiveness of your sins. You want to give up whatever offense you've had with God. And you want to be right with God. The Bible says Jesus knocks at the door. And if anyone opens it, he will come in. You want to lay down your pride, your offense, your sin, whatever it is. This is why Jesus came. Was to forgive you. And to give you this gift. So if that's you with every head bowed and every eye closed. Would you just raise your hand real high long enough for me to see it. I see that hand. God bless you. And that hand up in the balcony. Anybody else by upraised hand. I got you bro. God bless you. I got you back here. God bless you. If that was you. Would you just put your hand over your heart right now. And pray something like this in your own way. God you, you love me. Life is very hard. My life has been hard. And I, I don't want to carry judgments against you anymore. And so God, I just, I just say you are good even though I don't understand why my life is the way it is. But here's what my greatest need is to be forgiven. And I want to thank you for dying for me on the cross. Thank you for rising again from the dead. Thank you for knocking on my door. Jesus, come in and save me. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. Let me be one of your lights in this world, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.